I'm now in my 30th year working to restore nature in forests and on farms, mostly across the north of England. 30 years ago I left the city and my old job behind. I hung up my suit and tie and went off to plant trees. It's a decision I've never regretted. I'm Pete Leeson. Welcome to Tree Amble Podcast. This is a podcast about people and farming and trees and nature and how we could all do much better. Hi, and welcome back to Triamble. This is episode nine. I went down to Kent to meet with Fidelity. Fidelity is someone I've known for a wee while because she also has an interest in land in Cumbria. But this day, I went to see her at her home farm. She's had four decades on the farm of restoring nature back into her farm system. And to walk around that farm is truly inspirational. It has a network of woods and hedges, but also traditional animal husbandry. Fidelity has many interests, including pasture for life, a group encouraging grass-fed animal husbandry. We had a lovely spring walk through fields that felt alive and buzzing. I hope you enjoy this one. So, hello Fidelity. We're in Kent. Yes. On your farm. Yep. Uh, Thanks for having us here today. And we just had a quick walk around the farm and... uh, it's a fantastic network of old fields. But tell me, tell me what you do here and what's your sort of basic premise behind the farm. So you mentioned the old fields. I personally love the history of the farm. And um, we've restored all our hedgerow field boundaries. And the boundaries on the farm now are pretty similar to one that we've got on a map of 1655, which is, as you rightly identified, lots of small fields. And we're on the south face of an escarpment, which is just completely wooded. So over the 40 years that we've been here, um, our aim has really been, well, to maximise the biodiversity on the farm. We've done that by replanting hedges that were not complete or perhaps weren't there altogether. So now every single little woodland shore is joined up with an intact hedge. And that has meant we're a farm basically of small fields. I mean, our biggest field is actually um, 25 acres, but we've split that in half with a hedge. Um, so they're, they're small fields, we've got livestock farm, organic, been organic forever and we're now pasture for life which means that we don't feed our cattle and sheep any cereals, they just live on the land that they live on, so we don't buy anything in for them. So we're a very low input farm and I personally think on a farm of our size, I should say it's about just under 200 acres that we own. Mm-hmm. And then we also rent in grazing probably for about another 50 acres or so of the land up the hill. Um, but the only way that a farm of, of our size on our quality of land is going to make any money is just to not spend any money, if you can possibly help it. So that's our approach. And the result is, is that we produce the most amazingly flavoured um, beef and lamb, and it's full of nutrients. And that's the that's the premise. That's so it's all driven by grass and clovers and wildflowers in your in your pastures. Yes, yeah. And browse on hedgerows. Yes, yep. 
Yes, I mean, I think you, that's, that is how it looks, but actually I think it's also about the management of the livestock. Okay. So that over the 40 years, we've always felt we're doing our best for wildlife, but our view of how, that, how we do that has changed over the 40 years. So the biggest change came when we did convert to organic, which was in 2000, and that meant taking synthetic fertiliser off, off the land. That's the only thing we were doing before. And the result of that was that the the hay crop and the grass crop did go down for a while because the synthetic fertiliser advantages the ryegrass rye is, so we'd had lots of ryegrass. But after a very short time, a couple of years, all of the natural seed beds started to come through, so we've now got a great variety of grasses, the ryegrass is ducked off, and we're now as productive as we ever were before. Then the next big change for me was getting to know Pasture for Life and yeah. all the farmers who are trying new grazing management practices, which living in the very dry southeast is very important. So we now move our stock very, very regularly and give the fields a nice long rest. So everything's rested, species can come through, the grasses are growing longer, we're more resilient to the dry weather and the heat. Um, and Bob's your uncle. I feel we're doing better for wildlife now than we were before. So you've got sheep here and cattle. Yeah. yeah. And you're mob grazing. So we've talked yeah. to mob grazers before. Yeah. Um, the whole idea being you put everybody in small spaces, you graze quite hard, and then you take them off that space and move them somewhere else quite quickly. Yes, you might not necessarily graze quite hard. So people have different views about that. Mm -hmm. Now, we do like to graze quite hard at the end of the winter, which is when you're here now, because I'm w wanting diversity. And I like the idea that I know that lots of species seeds are in that seed beds and if I can get the, the sward down hard and leave some bare patches that some of those seeds of flowers and grass will have a chance to come through there'll be loads of people who do mob grazing who say you shouldn't take it down that low mm -hmm. but that's not what we do here at this time of year in the summer we do leave a lot more because we're frankly we're worried about the heat and and no rain and so the longer you leave a piece of grass the more its natural solar panel which is its leaf is there for the photosynthesize to really drive the growth yeah. of the grass and not the roots so you're helping your plants get deeper rooting going down to the the drier the, the wetter areas so I don't. The answer is we graze differently at different times of the year. Okay. And I use mob grazing very loosely, which is perhaps more accurate. It should be rotational grazing. Okay. Because um, you know you're just moving all the time. So we've had this discussion with other people about whether they're regenerative or not. Mm. Would you consider yourself regenerative? Well, I would, but I think regenerative is an incredibly difficult term, Pete. I mean, I think it's actually a meaningless term. And when you look at all the big food companies talking about how their food's been produced, and you'll see that word regenerative appearing on packets and everything else, it's not really defined. Um, you could argue, I mean, we've been organic now since 2020, uh, 2000, so for 23 years or something. In a way, organic farming is regenerative because there are some principles there, which is that you should... You should always be. You shouldn't be taking fertility away from the land. You should be putting it back into the land. Um, you shouldn't have bare soil. You should always have your soils covered. Um, but I'm afraid I will say we're regenerative because everyone understands what it means, or they think they understand what it yeah. means. But I would say it's a very dangerous term to use. But then we have the same questions with rewilding. Everyone thinks yeah. they know what they mean by rewilding or conventional. There's all sorts of bits. so names always trip yeah. us up, don't they? It's yes. Actually, it's coming out having a look and seeing, seeing how it works. Yeah. And it's the learning bit and the observations that come from that that we need to get better at, don't we? So. Yeah. Um, I mean, I really like what I've seen here. So we've got hedgerows that are allowed to grow out. We've got really tall hedgerows. We've got bramble in the margins. 
your fences are set back from your hedges, so you've got space between the hedge and the pasture. So there's, there's all the sorts of things going on there. There's lots of edge habitat here. So from a habitat perspective, brilliant. From a browse perspective, brilliant. And of course, in terms of a very dry southeast, as you say, actually lots of opportunity for shade, for shelter, and for those grasses to have seasonality to them. Yeah. So that's really interesting walking around. Um, we do get tripped up on, on words. Um, I like the idea of regeneration because it's a good, okay, I understand what that means. Um, but you've been doing this system for 40 years. Yeah. Do you think you've got it right? Are you? Um, I would say that I would never say I've got it right, no. I think that one of the most wonderful things about farming is, and especially at the moment, is the, the capacity to take on new ideas and, think, and have new ways of looking at things. So um, I think that's partly what I was trying to say, was that I might have 40 years ago thought I was doing it right, but I was doing it very differently from how I'm doing it now. And the business about moving your animals every day. So I think that's, when you talk about the edges, which are great, and they're, they, they're easy to work on, I think to be truly regenerative, you need to be doing it in the middle of your fields as well. So there's the whole land sparing and land sharing issue. And so I would say that it's not regenerative to have amazing edges, but then to continue, frankly, to put lo loads of chemicals on the middle of your fields and have monocultures that are just very, very free of any insects or anything. So... But, uh, but on the other hand, we have to be practical and we have to grow crops for us to eat. We have to grow animals for us to eat. So, so I realise that it's a probably not entirely practical, but I, I honestly believe there is a middle way, which is that it should be regenerated across the whole of the field. And if you can stop using chemical sprays, that would be such a big improvement for so many insects and then the, all, all the life that comes from having uh, loads of insects. So I, th I think that's one of the biggest, for me, stopping chemical use is one of the biggest things that should happen. So there's this issue at the moment, apparent issue with food security. Mm. Does your system provide lots of food for the area of land? So I would, I, I think that if I had a bit more time, Pete, I'm always doing things, but I, one of the things I think would be absolutely brilliant to work out is you take a farm like this and you look at what we're producing. We're producing high quality protein for people. Um, incredibly nutritious, so more nutritious than... Um, a lot of other proteins you can eat and the sorts of proteins that I would argue a human body needs in order to really thrive. I mean, we've only got the brains we've got because we have been eating really good quality meat over the, um, our ancestors did over the previous generation. So I, I am in favour of us as a population eating really good quality meat, not very often, maybe once a week or something. I think that's absolutely fine. You don't need to meet, eat meat every day. Um, but I think if you looked at, tried to analyse our farm in terms of the protein, which is the hardest thing to, to produce, and it's actually the, t the food that possibly takes the most energy. So if we're looking at the terrible situation that our world is in at the moment, it's all around the use of energy. You know, we need energy to produce our food, um, to produce everything. So I think if you look, took our cattle and said, okay, that farm is running cattle across the land, then they're hardly using their tractor at all. Those cattle are grazing fields in a way that means that, that we've got loads of dung beetles taking all the nutrients back down to the soil. Good, good variety of species in the field. Um, and at the end of the day, they're producing high quality meat, leather, all the byproducts of animals. And, and it's, we're not adding to the carbon, we're just recycling carbon that we're doing. So I would say that that must be a pretty good thing. But 
It wouldn't it be great to put some figures on it? Wouldn't it be great if I could say a farm of size 200 acres can feed all of the inhabitants that live within a five mile radius of here having a meat meal once a week and then somebody else can do the vegetables it might it must be possible to work that out but well, i never have so <laughs> but i think you should look at it like that it's very very nuanced this thing and to just say this is good and that is bad is just very it's very big has a bad rap doesn't it in terms of carbon yeah it really does and or, or in, in terms of land use yeah. I mean, you've just walked across our farm, Pete. You look at our land. As you rightly say, it'd be never any good for cereals or vegetables. No. It's far too poor for that. We're surrounded in amazing woodland. Woodland is not a scarce resource around here. What is a scarce resource are uh, species-rich pastures. We've lost 97% of our species-rich pastures since the 50s. Mm. Well, we can put some of them back here in, as you rightly say, little, little hedged fields. I think that's a brilliant use for this landscape. And we're producing, as you say, food. And what's more, trying to make sure that a place like this can be managed financially in a financially reasonable way. Okay, we're never going to make a million pounds from this place at all. But if we can make sure that it pays its way and, you know, we can get a bit of a living out of it, then what more can you ask for? Otherwise, if you did, if you stop farming this, it would all revert to woodland, yeah. which you might think is great. But we've got acres and acres of woodland up the hill. We don't need any more. Well, I can always argue for more woods. <laughs> Because <laughs> I'm clean up, but uh, but actually they, those 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 rough pastures with with wildflowers in, um, are are truly amazing. Mm. Um, we also have an ins in insect Armageddon, so biodiversity loss has been tragic in my lifetime, mm. um, and just woodlands for woodlands' sake, don't ask ask the question. I think we need quality woodlands and quality quality wildflower areas, mm. and wildflower areas um, are often driven by grazing. So managing that grazing in the right way can produce good wildflower areas, which then helps the insects and helps the birds. Mm. So yes, I agree with you entirely. The question is the how, isn't it? How do we get there? So yeah. taking fertilizer, taking pesticides and wormers out of the, out of the scenario mm. allows us to manage much more holistically. But that needs careful management, doesn't it? Yes, it does. I think it needs a, um, a completely different mindset. So. Um, so I suppose that if you walk into a field and you think, well, how am I going to get the most grass or get the most you know, product out of this field? It's so easy to say, well, I'll go down and buy a bag of fertiliser and bung it on. But actually you want to think, no, I'm not, not going to do that anymore. I don't want to do that anymore um, because we know that that fertiliser is really bad for the soil and for all the plants that are on it. And so you need to start thinking about your animals and how you're going to be grazing it. And are you, for instance, going to put all of your animals in one field for six months and just, it, that's called stock setting, um, and just leave them there, nibbling it all down and keeping all the same height. That's not particularly good. It's not very interesting and it's not particularly good. So, so instead, you're going to move them a lot. That might mean buying some electric fencing. That's a bit of a palaver you'd think but actually once you've got used to the electric fencing you can move your cattle every day and as long as you're out there observing all the time you really notice the changes that start to take place and that in itself I think is exciting I love I'm really looking forward to the rest of this year because we've done so many different grazing experiments over the winter yeah. not necessarily because we planned to but because the weather meant we had to do various things that we might not have chosen to do and I will be able to benefit from that in a couple of months time and see what's produced the most biodiverse sward of all of them so your system, all farming is at the at the behest of nature a wee bit, isn't it? Um, you've had some really dry. You've had four out of the last five summers extremely dry. Mm. Um, 
we had a really dry February, but then we went into a really wet March. Mm. So we've got areas of the farm which look quite poddled at the moment because the cattle have been on too long. Mm. Um, but then we might well be going into a very dry period. So it's very interesting to see how your fields are, are recovering or how they're, how they're coming out of the winter, really. Um, do you feel your system is more resilient, though, to climate change? Yes, I definitely do. So that, for instance, last summer, where we probably had the longest and driest summer, um, so we, we here probably didn't have um, much rain to speak of from March right through until September, October. Um, so we were, we were going around moving our, our, our cattle and sheep very, very regularly. Um, we, we had enough grass to see us through. It was very brown grass. Um, but by the time it rained, which was towards the end of September for us, and that's after when you normally get a lovely mm. spell of rain anyway um, to get the September growth going, those fields that we had been mob grazing very systematically came back way quicker than our others did. So the whole farm was brown um, and you could see those ones greening up more quickly. So for me, that just says it all. And I now need to just make sure we start doing that on some of the other fields. Right. Yes, so. so what's specifically happening underneath that mob grazing? What's, what's going on that makes the difference? So I would say that you're getting your deeper rooting plants, which we have just talked about. Yeah. But also, absolutely crucially, is all the biological activities that's going on under the ground. So, um, you know, underneath our feet... One of, one of the things I love saying to school kids when they come round to the farm is that you might see loads of sheep and cattle and when we had them, loads of chickens out on the farm and pigs and things. But actually, there's far more life underneath your feet than there is in front of your eyes. So 95% of life at Rumshed Farm is under the soil. It's dung beetles, it's worms, it's loads of little things that you can't even see with the naked eye. And that is, that is the area of land that is really firing up everything else I mean we didn't have that growing we wouldn't have anything growing on the top so that is the most critical bit and that's why I think you should it doesn't work so properly so well under there if it's stuff full of chemicals it doesn't work if you stick a plow in it but if you leave your plants with nice long roots and you have a great variety of plants on the top they're all working together to make the most incredibly active um I don't know what you'd call it, soil. It's soil, basically. Soil. It's really respecting soil as a biological ecosystem in its own right. And I just think that is absolutely key now to everything. So if you can rest it, um, you're, you're obviously giving it a lot of rest and I think it will then send the grass up more quickly. And is this the kind of thing that you're talking about through Pasture for Life? So I think the key thing about Pasture for Life is it is actually, it is a, a very important thing that we're doing. But uh, the key thing with Pasture for Life is, is really that you're not feeding your um, cattle or sheep any cereals at all. So it's done on the premise that from the point of view of the world, it's very, very inefficient. They're, they're ruminants. They don't need to be fed cereals. And so we should really be trying not to feed them cereals. They can live, 60% of the UK is grassland, and then you've got all the cover crops that are going on into arable lands. You can use your animals to put fertility naturally back into your soils, to be eating your grasslands, and be producing protein at the end of the day, and you shouldn't be feeding them cereals. So that is, we would say that is the gold standard. It's very possible to do it, but you can only do it if you start managing your land a bit differently and reckoning you get as long a season as possible for grass, which means you want lots of different species early and late species. You want to manage it in a way that means that you've got a nice wedge of tall grass in the winter, so you can put your animals out on it in the winter if you want to, or you you might have got a barn full of hay, but best of all is to get them, keep them out as long as you can. So you immediately, the pasture for life 
think means that you do have to start thinking differently about how you manage the land. And in my view, it's an incredibly positive way of looking at your inputs, which go to zero. I have no, I really have very, very few inputs on, on our beef and sheep. And that means that it makes it financially more viable. And is partially for life a, a loose collection of of like-minded people or is it uh, how, how does that work so pasture for life is i think we've got about 900 members now mm-hmm. probably about 800 are farmers and the other 100 are probably they're academics they are chefs restaurateurs butchers people who all believe that um, ruminants shouldn't be fed cereals and we can have the most amazing meat produced off grass only um, and as a group of people well, I just think they're the most amazing group of people. They're all incredibly open-minded. Um, we have a wonderful forum for sharing um, information on. Um, very, everyone's very generous with their time. We all rather like the journey that we're all going on, yeah. and we're all doing it together. And we've just set up um, a mentoring project, which okay. we started off in the southeast. So using FIPL funding, which is the Funding in Protected Landscapes, we got the three AMVs around here, so the, the um, Kent Downs, the High Weald, and the Surrey Hills. Um, we got funding to have a project manager, and now us pasture for life farmers are all have we've been trained as mentors, yeah. and we're now starting to um, help each other learn all the time and and make changes to their farms. And I really think that's the way that it has to go. That you know you you learn as a farmer, you go and visit somebody else's farm and hear their ideas. You learn so much, and that is what the pasture for life community is about. Is just people really wanting to change for the better. So it's peer to peer learning. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, and we we're often in this space where we talk about what government should be doing, what what governments are doing, what they're not doing, and the, oh, don't um, get me onto the government. Please. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I I so for years I've always thought you though our one of the things we should be doing is influencing policy, but the past life's never had enough money to do everything. We've been a membership organisation. Now I'm so glad we didn't waste tons of time trying to influence the government because it doesn't work and I feel it has to be a sort of revolution from the bottom up that you just have to bloody well get on and do it and okay try and make sure that if they're going to give out grants they're doing it in a way that's supporting our type of farming but um, at the end of the day you know we're trying to run businesses I'm not going to wait for the government to do stuff I'm going to make sure my business is as resilient as it can be with what I've got and I think that's another thing about the pastoral life community is that we're just going to get on and do it. It'd be great if the government would support it. If the government would support our method of farming, I honestly think you could transform the way people yeah. farm in this country. And I, I think most farmers want change, but they want security. And they want to, they want to know that they're going to be secure in making that change. Because it actually is very, very hard to make change in farming because you're nearly always on the brink financially. Yeah. And you've also, you know, you've, be, you've learned to do things in one way and to have to unlearn that and do it in another way is very hard. But if your fellow farmers can be helping you through that process, I, I think that is pretty powerful, really. It, it's quite difficult. A lot of the people I work with, you know, the fact the £1,000 or £2,000 to put a new fence in, mm. it comes off their bottom line. Yeah. And if yeah. you're earning very little money anyway, you don't yeah. want to spend £2,000 no. on a new fence. It's, it, the, so that's the last thing that happens. Yeah. So fences go go quite quickly and then the stock are in where they shouldn't be and then there's it's like it's, it's firefighting the whole time isn't mm. it so it's very difficult yeah um yeah. Uh, policy i mean policy is changing because obviously the single farm payments going um there is the idea of contractorship plus there's these different grants coming in um but i really like the idea of peer-to-peer learning mm. and and farmers taking their own direction on that because every time you're trying to prescribe something 
on a national scale, it can't quite work, can it? Mm. So I know you've got you're interested in land in Cumbria as yeah. well as in Kent, and they're completely different spaces, aren't they? Yeah. Yes, they're com- they are completely different spaces, and so I would say that on the peer-to-peer learning, I wouldn't dream of um, being a a, a, um, a mentor for somebody in Cumbria because the situation is completely different but you'll be so glad to hear Pete that we've also been successful in a bid um, <laughs> for our, our mentoring project That's in Cumbria so it covering a massive um, area I can't now remember because I wasn't um, so involved in that bid but yeah. there are five um, national parks and AMBs or maybe even six up there and they'll have set up their own they'll have designed their own mentoring scheme they'll have their own farmers mentoring them and so I would say I'm, I'm confident at doing that in the southeast we've got similar situations down here but I wouldn't want to do it anywhere else and so these these mentoring projects need to be very local and and you know you're you're all understanding what your environment is around you I think we are involved in that one I think loosely um, you might be do you know do you know Ruth Dalton yes so she she yeah. she did the bid for us and um, I tell you who the guy is who's running it Rob Bunn is it Rob Bunn anyway that we've got um yeah. do you yeah well she's involved in it yeah. Um, so yeah, so hopefully that one it's just starting now. Hopefully mm-hmm. that will take off big time because some really amazing farms in Cumbria. There's the um, I can't remember the young couple who live um, on the end of one of the lakes. Cabra Hall. Yes. Sam Sam, that's it. Yeah, Aren't Sam they amazing? Yep. Those two. Brilliant. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So there's always we can always come back to one or two names, and your name circulates in in this area. Sam Clare circulate, Nicola yeah. and Paul circulate. There's a yeah. few people out there prepared to put their head above parapet level. The, the farming industry is quite conservative. Mm. And I think people are, they don't want to be made fools of and they don't want to make themselves look foolish, do they? No. So if you're doing something different in the landscape, it can be quite hard to, to mm. do that because you're changing your own system. You've got to make mistakes. Yeah. You don't want to make those mistakes in public. Is part of your mentoring all about how helping people over that threshold of, of mistakes and doubt? Well, do you know, I think one of the best things that I've learnt in the mentoring thing, and, and learnt from my... Because I've learnt what I do here, I've learnt from other people, is that, do you know, it's absolutely all right to make mistakes. Mm. Um, because, and in fact, that's the way you learn. And, and in some ways, if you're going for a low-input system and you make mistakes... You haven't spent loads of money. You haven't taken out a bank loan to do anything. You you have made a mistake, and you, as long as you've realised what the mistake is, you can rectify it next time. So, um, I think that you have to realise that it's not bad to make mistakes at all. Um, and it is really hard when it is really hard in a community when other people think you're really they just don't think what you're doing is the right thing to be doing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I suppose I felt that. You know, we farmed organically here in an area that's not really very organically farmed. And lots of people have thought, well, I wonder if that's really the way to do it. But I sort of feel that after doing it for 40 years, I actually think, and especially with the climate changing now in the southeast as it is, I honestly think people would see the grass on our farm in a dry summer and think, blimey, maybe they are doing something right over there. Because actually they have got grass. We, ha- we can carry more cattle and sheep if we want to we might decide not to but so I think it, this is part of the bottom up approach if you really believe in something you should go for it and do it because you might be right and if you are then that's great isn't it it's interesting because I think your farm it's far, far harder to look over your hedgerows and see what you're doing than it is in Cumbria because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we've got little tight walls uh, you're actually quite hidden away here in many respects aren't you it, 
it feels, yeah. it feels idyllic on this farm. And I love trees, so to be surrounded by trees is, is, is awesome. But, you know, it's probably a bit harder to look at what you're doing for other people, isn't it? Well, it is, but that's, don't you think that's, I think that's part of the West Kent landscape, is yeah. that the landscape's very, very small, and it's full of, as you've noticed, small fields, tall hedges, loads of woodland shores. We're a very, um, a very small landscape, and, you know, you only need to walk actually a bit further along in Kent, for instance, or even just a bit further around our escarpment. It all opens out much more, and then you have much more sweeping hills, mm. fewer hedgerows. Mm. So we happen to be in... A particularly amazing area of Kent, I think, with just very small, steep, steep um, hills and loads of woodlands and hedges. We're lucky. And you're not all that far away from NEP, are you? Which is that amazing rewilding mm. project. Yeah. Completely different approach. Yes. Well, it's funny because we I've been to NEP loads of times. I think it's, I think it's inspirational going to NEP. But one of the things I feel about NEP, so our our children who are all thinking about their futures are very concerned about biodiversity loss and are very inspired of course by NEP. Um, I spend my life defending our farm over NEP um, but I would say that one of the things about NEP is that it's an inc- it was an incredibly dull landscape, it's totally flat, yeah. it would have been big industrialised sized fields um, not a lot of variety in it. Whereas you walk out into our farm, and because we've got the, the green sand escarpment behind us, the landscape is already totally beautiful. Mm. We don't need to do NEP here because it's already so beautiful. It's quite intricate already. NEP is creating much more intricacy, isn't it, over there? So in a way, the, the trees are coming through, the cattle are grazing around them and creating new little nooks and crannies that wouldn't have been in that landscape before. So they've got far more scope for massive change than we have here because we've already got plenty of hedgerows and trees and things. So I think it's different. And, and I think that's part of the, this journey I'm on really, which is that going and seeing difference, the, the ability to come to someone like you and walk across a field and actually see how you're managing your fields in your context and then going somewhere else and seeing how something mm. else is fantastic because yeah. it allows exactly that. So I'm, I'm fascinated by rewilding, um, but I'm also, concerned about the debates about it in terms of food production and people. Mm. And, and so I think there's a real opportunity for rewilding, but I also think there's an opportunity for your style of farming. And maybe somewhere else it's a different style of farming. And I think that's really interesting in this landscape. Because sure, we've got a problem, we've got masses to resolve, but taking each segment of that landscape and, and changing each segment in the way it can go is fantastic. Mm. Um, and. Yeah, this this seems to me to be a farm where if you can produce good good quality meat from this, then it's going to work. It's a great place to do that, and you can do that with biodiversity. Yes. And NEP is NEP. You are you, and where we're off to in the next few days is Suffolk and Norfolk, and they are they. Yeah. So let's have a look at what they're doing as well, and and and, and analyse that. But one thing I'd really like to do is go out and have a walk around your woodlands and see some of your animals. So perhaps let's, we should go and do that. Let's go and do that. just come into one of your cattle fields yeah. what, what are these cows so these are herefords uh, they're quite smallish herefords they've got a lot of traditional in them so if you want to do very low input farming you want animals that are really well suited to not being fed any cereals or anything so we don't feed our cattle or sheep any cereals at all they just live on the land that they uh, live on live off the land that they live on 
um, and we've been trying to keep them out as much as we can this, this winter. In fact, one of the reasons is right here. We see this lovely cow pad. We're, so we're, sat, we're sat next to this little big brown dollop. <laughs> it's got lots of little holes in it, though, Pete. Yeah, so has. that's where the dung beetles will yeah. be going. And the advantage of having cattle out over the winter is you get a big season of dung beetles, oh, yeah. not just in the summer. So look at them all. They're crawling all over the place. So Fidelity has just put her hands right in the middle of this poo. Lovely. And look at, it. look at that. Doesn't it smell delicious? It does actually smell of grass. Yeah. It doesn't smell pooey at all. And there are beetles of mm. all descriptions and sizes running mm. all over. Very, very shiny. There's quite a lot of small ones there. And what they're going to be doing is they're going to be burying down through the dung into the soil. Then they make little um, horizontal um, hideaways where they... Um, uh, lay their eggs which turn into a larvae and then those are the engineers of the soil under the ground so why you, another reason why you shouldn't plough really is you want to protect the biology under the ground so mm. all of the insects that are under there are doing this incredible job of taking the nutrients from the cow poo down into the soil and they can go 40 to 50 centimetres down can't they they can take it a long long way yeah. down yes yeah. so that's storing carbon it's taking nutrients down um, it's also providing food for birds Yes, definitely. And one of the one of the most loved one of the things I love most about the farm is I think of all the swallows. Look here, the cows are going to come and look at us. Yeah, well. <laughs> is um, the swallows flying all the way from Africa yeah. in order to hunt our beetles and our insects that are on our dung pats from our yeah. lovely cows. Hello. Yes. They're a bit hungry because it's the end of the winter and they're just fed some rather manky old hay now to keep them here. So this is what, and this poo will disappear probably in two or three days and yes. be all sucked up. Yeah, it's amazing how quickly they'll disappear because of the beetles. Yeah, there's another beetle there. Yeah, it's just infested with them. It's fantastic. Isn't it? So there we go. Yeah. So organic cattle, organic farm. It, this is a poo-driven soil, isn't it? Yes, it is, and the organic bit is really important because when you worm your animals, if you're not organic, you can use a whole range of wormers, some of which will actually kill dung beetles themselves. So that's that's something which every farmer should really stop using is a, a, a variety of wormer that we all know kills dung beetles um, but best of all is to manage your cattle so they don't need worming I mean yeah. we never worm our cows they're moved around a lot clean grazing we don't we hardly do anything to our cows at all. haven't wormed them for years they're completely natural sitting there grazing away and producing delicious beef in at the end of the day. And until we came, they were perfectly, <laughs> perfectly quiet and happy, but we've made them a little bit upset. This yeah. is going to be a massive bunch of dog rows here. It's going to be fantastic. Isn't it? So what, what you've, you've been here 40 years on this yeah. farm. Yeah. And you... One of the things you did when you first came was to sort of rebuild your structure of hedgerows. Yes. And actually, we're, we're stood next to a woodland, and, and some people would say, well, that's a woodland. Does that need to expand? But you've actually given it space to expand, haven't you? We have, yes. We're making this woodland edge now, um, completely different from what will be the field. And I love that idea that this little area here is an extension of the woodland. Maybe in 10 years' time, we'll decide we need to go further into the field as yep. well. I mean, our children are incredibly interested in, if I say to them, how would you like us to leave the farm? They want it to be the best it possibly can for wildlife. Whilst um, producing food? Yes. Well, I think from our point of view, it has to be the economics for us is that 
we want to have a lifestyle which means that we can go away um, if we want to. I can go and do work for Pasture for Life and yeah. um, the Commons and all the other things that I'm doing. And I can only do that because we can make the farm afford to pay for somebody. So we can, the farm at the moment pays three days a week for a stockman to share him with somebody else. Yeah. So I think anyone who lives here has to have that luxury so you can just really enjoy the farm. It's still loads of work, but you've just got that breathing space. Yeah. So that's for us, that's the economics of this farm because we're incredibly lucky that Martin earns another income. So it's not our only income, but it has got to pay its way in that respect. This area here behind the back here, you can just see, we cleared out a pond. Yep. Can you see the willows? Don't yep. you think this blackthorn? Isn't that amazing? So there's a, there's a patch of blackthorn, um, which must be 12 feet high. Yeah. And it's, it's still in blossom at the moment. And there's, there's bramble growing up through it. There's dog's mercury underneath it. Um, this is, and there's loads of bird song in the background as well, so it's, yeah. it's clearly working. Um, and this has got browse valley as well, hasn't it, for your animals? Yes, yep. As well as the wildlife side. Yep. Then so, I'd like also, they look at this little pond, which maybe should we be going back in again? You can see where we coppiced the willow, what, probably yep. seven to ten years ago, do you think? Should we go yep. back in and take some of that out? Because it's just going to swamp across it, isn't it? It's taken a lot of light off, hasn't it? Yeah. Um, and it looks like it's slightly... Um, looks muddy. looks yep. like you might have carp in there, actually. <laughs> but it's... Uh, yeah. It's a ditch, really. Yeah. It takes water off the top of the hill. Our neighbours... runs down between us. And it's, it's dry most of the summer. There's always this discussion about wetlands, isn't it? So whether to, to keep them open and managed or whether some to allow them to degrade like this but with lots of willow and, and, and sort of wet habitat. Um, I'm sure there's some experts that could disagree either way. But the creeping thing on a farm is to have lots of different habitat types, mm. isn't it? Yeah. So this is just one habitat type. And we've got wet ditches, you've got wet field corners, you've got ponds. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a management decision. Yeah. You've got to make it at some point. Yes, I suppose in a way maybe you could say you have to manage your ponds, like you might do your hedgerows on a sort of... You, you pick a rotation, maybe it's yeah. a 15-year rotation or... I mean, I know some people now are managing their hedgerows on a 30-year rotation. They're letting them grow up, yeah. coppicing them right down after 30 years. Um, all very valid things to be doing. And as you rightly say, it's diversity is everything across the whole farm. And on your farm, we've already seen um, some fantastic old oaks. You've got old ash trees. You've, it's actually a very wooded, it feels like a very wooded landscape here with small paddocks. Yes. Um, and now you've reconnected with these lovely hedgerows which, to my eyes, are beginning to look really quite mature. So they're eight to ten feet high, full of blackthorn, hawthorn. This time of year they're white with a blossom. Um, so that reconnection's already happened. I suppose the question is what comes next and how you make that, um, that really work. Well, so maybe we've walked into an area just by complete coincidence about what could come next. So this was a hedgerow which we've just taken, we're just starting to cut right down because it was really manky. It's very overshadowed by the wood here, the trees. So the question is, do we get the trees cut back or do we actually put a fence way into the field, leave that old bit of hedge to come mm. back up again and let it all scrub over? I don't think that hedge will ever make an amazing hedge because it's so shadowed. There's lots and lots of shade over the top of it, lots yeah. of big oaks leaning into the pasture. Yep. Taking a lot of light off the grasses, but actually... Again, giving them shelter and shade, aren't they? So the yeah. grassland edge is actually, that's going to be interesting in summer when you come to graze it, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And um, also now in the southeast, when we have such hot summers yeah. and dry summers, it's always under the trees that the grass manages to keep going. 
So that's so that's yeah. introduced seasonality by just having that tree leaning over the pasture. And these bigger ones at the wing, back have got wingspan of maybe 10, 15 metres. So that, that lean over the pasture is giving quite a lot of shelter to that grass. Yeah. Um, but it's sheltered out the hedge, so that's your question, isn't it? What yeah, to do it next is. with that? Yeah. Is that a footpath just the other side? Yeah, it's a bridle path. Let's go through there. What I love about the farm is all the history. So you mentioned the old oaks, they're not from the old pollardy oaks. So you know that um, the po pollards in hedgerows started growing out um, after the Enclosures Act, because before the Enclosures Act, which were at all different times across the country, the tenants had the right to the woods in the hedgerows, and so they'd be pollarding them all the time because they needed the, w the wood. The Enclosures Act gave that right to the landlords, so they stopped pollarding them. So when you see one of our pollarded trees, you know it's been there okay. since the Enclosures Act. I love those sorts of historical things. The, the names, the field names, all have stories behind them as well. So there's, we've just walked across Kiln Field over there, when yeah. probably there was a kiln, which yeah. they would have been making charcoal and stuff. So there's so much to read in the landscape, and lovely, lovely stories which go with them. And, but that story's still changing because you're doing an experiment in this field with three different treatments for for t establishing a a, a, a species-rich grass sward. Yes. Yes, so that again, so this for years, since we've been here, this has been, well, mainly managed for grazing, but it was 10 years in, in um, Arable because we had a countryside stewardship grant, for, especially for um, farmland birds, so we right. planted it up in the spring. Um, but it's not good to arable land, so we're putting it back now into grassland. And as you rightly say, we're looking at three different ways of getting the species back into the field. So there's a very conventional sowing of a lovely um, seed mix, ploughed the field, harrowed it, put it all in with the quad bike, very conventional. Then bale grazing, which means um, you put a bale of hay over winter on a piece of land, which is full of species-rich hay, and you're, you roll it out, and your cattle eat it, they trample it into the ground, they poo the seed out from their backsides, and it gets put in, the seed gets put into the ground like that. And then the first bit of the field, we put green hay, which means that um, we did this two years ago, and we went out one day, we baled 10 bales of green hay from our species-rich um, field, brought it across, and then Martin and I, and we're not that um, young anymore, managed to <laughs> ro roll out these 10 very heavy green bales of hay yeah. all over. And to my absolute joy, my complete favourite flower came up last summer from that, which is the grass vetchling. It's that, okay. that, that yeah. ma amazing little cerise pink flower. Yeah. And it covered that area there. So beautiful. Whether it'll be there this year, we'll see. So this ancient small meadow, and it's quite small actually. Mm. I mean, compared with the, with some of the fields I, I work with in Cumbria, this is quite small. It's yeah. surrounded by woodland. Yeah. It's a very wooded landscape. Within that, we've got this ancient system, but we've still got modern changing thinking about how we yes. how we keep this thing rolling forward. I love that, the fact you're still still doing new stuff on this old field. Yes, that's true. And in a way, what we've come back round to is doing probably what this is best with, which is growing grasses and grass-related flowers, not cereals. It's not... We're on really heavy clay soils. It's not really suitable for cereals. So maybe we're also just finally fully respecting what this landscape can so deliver. So this is kind of grade three, grade four land. So yep. it's not... It's not. You're going to have to push it really hard to get a decent arable crop off it. Definitely. So that means fertiliser. It means... It means hard work with a plough, lots of fossil fuels yes. to get a relatively light. 
I should yield. just say we never use fertilizer because we're organic. So we would use, we would always under sow it with a clover mix. So we'd have our crop would grow through with clover, mm-hmm. which would keep the soils covered mm-hmm. and put, put nitrogen back into the soil. But you're right, we were pushing it heavily. in this area, not just on this farm. In this area, pushing arable is hard work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Traditionally, what would it have been? Would it have been a, a sort of Kent sheep for wool or? Well, as I say, it would have been woodland, dare I say, yeah. right at the okay. beginning. But my, I have this constant discussion with our children, which is that woodland's everything. But I would say, actually, in this area, it's not everything because we've got amazing woodlands right up on the hill. Mm. What, what we're missing is those 97% of meadows that were taken out by the land being pushed, yeah. as you describe. And I want to restore some of that 97% and have our farm being having wonderful meadows in it. And so your restoration of the... Hedgerows was what you did first. That's sort of first phase in the in your your early years of your forty years here. It's now looking really very much at looking at the pastures and restoring those to species-rich pastures. To me, this is joyful because we've got big trees, we've got young trees, we've got connecting hedgerows, we've got bits of woodland like the one behind us with bluebell in it, and you're restoring the meadows. This could be really flower-rich and lots and lots of edge habitat, which I love. Yes. So the edge is where everything happens. It's where you get change and managing your animals could allow that change to be really exciting and dynamic. So exciting. And actually, thinking about the change, if we just walk up here to this bit of woodland here, so 30 years ago, as you can see, we'd have put a fence all the way down that piece of woodland, uh, just a conventional stock fence, in order to keep the stock out of the wood. And I'm really glad we did it, because if I'd like to test your knowledge, Pete, if we walk (laughs) through this this piece of woodland, there are so many trees that look like plums and pears and apples and we can't tell one from the other but I think in days gone by this would have been rich with fruit of some right. sort or another. We've actually got the tallest crab apple tree in Kent on our farm. Okay. That's yep. in some record or another. But anyway, just going back to this fence. Now the fence is about to fall down yep. and because of change in technique and what we're learning about new ways of grazing, instead of putting back an old wire stock fence we've put one strand of wire which will electrify and then we'll be able to mob graze our cattle okay and sheep it's called when you move them possibly every single day and I've come to the view that that's really good for wildlife as well because you're just nibbling it for one day and then yeah. giving it a really long rest so the infrastructure is changing again now and I hope that we'll see another notch up in the way the meadows okay. are managed and the, what they actually look like you can see the bluebells here already spilling out spilling out into the field the yeah. yeah so that edge i think is where lots of things are going to happen on the farm mm, yeah um, that's what you can manage as well so manage sometimes push harder at it sometimes let it come back out again yeah. and that that's a really lovely space because all the while that's moving and changing you've got young plants in there you've got young suckers it's going to be fantastic for wildlife yeah and this faces a little bit south Probably. Uh, yes, it does. South is probably there. So that's yeah. going to be nice, warm. So this time of year, early spring, it's going to be nice and warm for those early bees, hoverflies, butterflies. Um, and maybe in the, he- in the heat of summer, maybe it'll be the other side of the wood where you have those congregating because it's going to be more shady. We also know we have snakes down there because I've got two ah. bits of tin, which I love. Right, when okay. we have our school groups around, yeah. the great excitement is to take them to the piece of tin and, if we're lucky, to see a snake, snake. coming out underneath it. <laughs> I'm really now a proponent of not taking your grass down to a billboard because 
it'll come back so much more quickly and we're quite likely here in the southeast to end up with some incredibly high temperatures and very very long periods of drought so I'm really conscious now of not keeping stock in the field any longer than I so really this is really part of your 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 graze it quite hard but then move quite quickly system y yes exactly graze it quite hard at this time of year because yep. I want to open it out and let the light in so any seeds that are there have got a chance to come up so I hope that that will increase the diversity but actually you'll see when you get into not grazed right down to an inch yep. but maybe two inches instead in the summer I would graze it much more lightly because of the drought business so right. let the roots rest after a long period don't hammer them so the idea is is that if you just graze a little bit you don't then rely on the roots to re-energize the plant but the the photosynthesis from the sun so you're leaving say four inches of grass or maybe six even and that's like a solar panel mm. which is taking the energy from the sun and you yeah. can leave the roots to keep on going down to find the moisture further and those roots will go deeper once you've got the solar panels yeah up. exactly yeah and then so that opens up pores in the ground it has a little bit of water storage air, yep. air, air capacity of the soil allows water storage those roots are deeper so they're finding moisture so in your drier and drier summers we can come back sooner into each field yeah yeah. So that's adding to your resilience as a farm, even in those summers. Yeah, definitely. And I would say, it's, for us living in the southeast, that is crucial. We're not going to survive. But we, our farm, if we'd nibbled it all down, I honestly think that in the summers we've had for the last four years, we would have no grass. But as it is, we've managed to keep our, our animals going, moving them a lot. So it's more time-consuming, but worth it. Okay. Let's go so, and get them out of this field. Yeah, we'll leave this gate open. Right, let's go around behind the back of these. I always, I think it's amazing when you come in, they all start mothering up. Yep. So that those are two blue 29s run up to their mum. So we've just got to try and push these through. So if we've we got... give up because we haven't got sand, yep. we just leave the gate open yep. and, and they will themselves. find their way through. So we've got a fantastic bunch of ewes here, all numbered up. Some have got twins, some have got singles. They're all numbered. We've got 29, 22 and 17 ahead of us. All grooving very nicely. That's what I'd say to any school kids here. Okay. Can find the Go on, you lot. Mongo's looking a little bit like a sheepdog, but not very much. I think the best thing to do is if we go around this way, yep. we can sort of push them all back down towards them. And you can see this, I mean, this was lovely when we went into it. Yeah. But now it's muddy because it's been so wet. Muddy, it's quite well trampled. Yeah. So I, I'm quite happy seeing these brown bits because I know that this had got nice seed in it last year. So I hope that it'll come new. So there's enough poaching to allow seeding. Yeah. But actually when we're walking over most of the grass, it's still got three or four inches in the grass. Yeah. It's certainly not been nailed down. There's plenty of length in it left. Yep. And it's still quite green, isn't it? So. And then the sheep will be back in here how long? Um, well, it depends partly what these people want to do with their fields. Sometimes they want it to grow up, let, let the wildflowers set. Yeah. And then we put the cows back in, um, say, July, if they want to do that. Yeah. If they want to keep it down, then we put the sheep back in here, say, in a month's time, so maybe right. six weeks, depending on, on how, how the season's gone. But those lovely long rests allow that whole process of deeper rooting, taller grasses, and then the sheep come in and take the grasses off. 
Yes. Open up for wildflowers. Yes, definitely. And also to let the plants seed. Let's just check over the yeah. brow here, make sure there's nothing down there. I think it's really important to let all the plants seed because you're getting new seed going back into the ground. If you don't ever let your flowers or even your grasses seed, then what's, what's new in the field? That all looks clear. It all looks clear, yeah. Yep. And actually, the reseeding thing is something which I... I've often questioned really as to how regularly people reseed fields. Yes. Um, it seems like a lot of effort to me with a plant that will seed itself. I totally agree, and also it's it's very drastic as well to plough up a field and put in completely new seed. And most of all, you're also if you, you want to think of underneath the grass, it's a biological ecosystem in its own right. You're completely destroying all of those little creatures, fungi all the tiny little mycorrhizal fungi and bugs and everything else that's living in there are getting totally trashed by the plough and actually they're doing the most incredible job underneath the soil we can't see them but they are what we need to be protecting so i think that's another really good reason if you don't have to plough don't and number 29 just stopped to have a good drink Fidelity and I spent a lovely afternoon walking through fields, looking at hedgerows, weaving in and out of woodlands, listening to the sheep and the cattle, and Fidelity unforgettably dissecting a cow pat with her own fingers was just a joy. It was a lovely time spent somebody who's clearly knowledgeable and, and passionate about their farming, their land and their outputs. Uh, it was a joy. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And for our final episode in this series... Next week, we're going to meet Catherine and Tim, who are doing a fantastic job of a rewilding type experiment on land in the Yorkshire Dales. So come and join us on that one. Thank you. You've been listening to the Tree Amble podcast, written and produced by myself, Pete Leeson. My special thanks go to Pete Ord for his awesome production and mixing skills. And actually, Pete and Pete, both of us, we wrote the music. So thanks very much to Pete for his input there. The recording was on location with mixing and production at the studio at Sunbeams, part of the Annie Mawson Sunbeams Music Trust. Thanks also to all those lovely people who were interviewed, Simon Wakefield for the artwork, and my special thanks go to those who gave me the confidence and support to make this happen. Angela, Anne, Catherine, Tim, Tim, Kevin, Emma, Nick and Paul, thank you.